God has always had a headquarters on the earth. When the nation Israel was born, the Almighty dwelt among them in an elaborate tent constructed by Moses. The tabernacle stood in Shiloh for 350 years. Later, God set up command in a temple built by King Solomon. It was a grand and glorious temple. In fact, the rabbis taught that the earth was holy to the Lord. But on earth, the holiest land was the nation Israel. Within Israel, the holiest city was Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the holiest place was the temple. And in the temple, the holiest spot was the inner court called the Holy of Holies, where the tangible presence of the glory of God resided. God inhabited this temple for 400 years. But when Jesus was born, God dwelt in another type of temple, a house made of flesh and blood and bone, not a tent, not a building, but a person, a human being. The glory of God came to dwell in a man. John chapter 1 verse 14 speaks of the birth of Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt, or literally tabernacled. He templed among us. In John chapter 2, Jesus himself spoke of his body as the temple. He said to the Jews, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, the Jews thought he was speaking of a brick and mortar temple. But John explained he was speaking of the temple of his body. Specifically, the timing of his resurrection. The point is, God has always had a temple. A dwelling on earth where his presence could be found. The tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, the body of Jesus. But when the risen Lord ascended to heaven, God chose a fourth and final temple. It's God's last outpost on the earth. He chose us, the church. We are now the temple of God, a dwelling of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit not only dwells in each of us individually, but He also resides among us corporately. God's Spirit acts as we act. He loves as we love. He breathes life into our interactions. The church as a whole, our fellowship together, creates a temple to God. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul referred to himself as a wise master builder. He had laid a sure and solid foundation. The church in Corinth was built on Jesus. But how the Corinthians were building onto that foundation would one day be inspected. Their attitudes will be put to the test as well as ours. What is done from a pure heart and a right motivation will adorn the church as gold and silver and precious stones, whereas pride and selfishness like wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up in the fire of God's holiness. And this is why the carnality, the spiritual immaturity, so evident in the church at Corinth, was grievous to God. For there were splinter groups in this church. Corinth was a fractured family. Believers had gravitated around their favorite teachers. Cliques, little fan clubs had developed. Some believers were of Paul. Others were of Apollos. And their sectarian attitude was repulsive to God. It grieved him to watch his family torn apart by a divisive spirit. And now, 
to jar them out of their carnality. Paul reminds the Corinthians of God's higher purpose for them. He writes to them in verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Here's what boggles my brain. Paul refers to the church. And this was a flawed church here in Corinth. But he refers to every church as his dwelling place, his temple. You know, it's true. You can go out into the woods or you can sit by the lake or you can climb a mountain and you can behold the glory and wonders of God. All the world is God's domain. But there is something very special about God's church. God camps out in the church. This is home to God. The local church is where God builds a fire and warms his hands. In the church, among the praises of his people, in fellowship with us, our eternal God is most at home. I love Psalm 22, verse 3. It's a picture of the Old Testament temple that sheds a light on the New Testament church. The psalmist there tells us that God inhabited the praises of his people Israel. Literally, God was enthroned in their praises. When the sacrifices were offered on the altar there in the temple, the aroma rose to heaven as a sweet smell in God's nostrils. And likewise, God relishes the worship and the praise that rises up from us, from the confines of the church. Hey, never take our worship times for granted. It's not just entertainment. Heartfelt worship brings pleasure to God. As we praise God, we fulfill our role as His temple. You know, I get so much joy in gathering up my grandsons in the wheelbarrow. And I put them together in one place and we just sit down together and we spend time together. And this is God's attitude toward church. This is His opportunity to gather up His kids in one place and spend time with us. We are his temple. In the Old Testament, the temple served two purposes. It was for witness and for worship. It heralded God's praise and it housed God's glory. When men wanted to come to God or interact with God, they journeyed to the temple. In the wilderness, directly over the tabernacle's badger skin roof, resided a glory cloud. It was called the Shekinah glory. Fire was enveloped in a cloud. The tabernacle was physical evidence of God's presence on the earth, as was true of Solomon's temple. And people were attracted to Jesus for the same reasons. For in Christ, God's glory was on display. His miracles, the wisdom of His teachings, His healing, His mercy, they could come and experience God. And this should be the reputation of every church. As God's temple, we should be providing our community with tangible evidence of God's presence. Our love for each other, the caring and nurturing we show, should draw men to explore the reasons for such grace. A person's search for God should lead him or her to the church. We should be a pleasant curiosity to our community. You see, the people in Corinth, they had no problem believing that God was in Christ. But they had a harder time seeing Christ in His church. 
Their splintering, their fracturing was contrary to their role as God's temple. And sadly, that same fussing and friction that was present in Corinth plagues many of our churches today. That shouldn't be. Our unity in the Spirit, our devotion to God's truth, our love for one another is what enthrones Jesus. It's what makes His presence felt among us. The goal of every church should be a display of God's presence so thick you can cut it with a knife. Our love should make God's presence evident to the world around us. I love this quote. A church should make it easy for men to find God and difficult for them to forget Him. When Franklin Roosevelt was president, he frequently attended a church in Washington, D.C. One weekend, the pastor got a call from a reporter asking if the president planned to attend that Sunday. I love this pastor's reply. He said, that I cannot promise, but we expect God to be here. And we figure that will be incentive enough for a reasonably large attendance. (laughs) Hey, it's God's power. It's his presence that should be our expectation whenever we gather together as his church. We are his temple. But here's what's interesting. The Corinthians knew Christ. They understood their relationship with him. But that didn't mean they were equally aware of their relationship with each other. And that's why Paul asks here with a sense of astonishment. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? How did you miss this? Did you not know this reality? And yet even today, Christians fail to see and appreciate their connection, their responsibility to one another. Do we not know that we together are a temple of the Holy Spirit? In 2013, Barna surveyed 1,000 American adults. They were asked the question, what do you think about going to church? 30% said attending church wasn't important at all. 40% were ambivalent. They could take it or leave it. Only 30% said that church attendance was significant. It's interesting, of those who downplayed the importance of church, 40% commented, I find God elsewhere. Another 35% complained that the church wasn't personally relevant. I thought it was shocking that among the younger generation, 20% said that God is missing from church. And of those who claim to have grown spiritually in the past year, when asked what made your faith grow, the church didn't even make the top 10. Christians today have lost touch with who we are. We might think of our own bodies as God's temple, but we lack a corporate sense of connection and purpose. What would Paul say if he were among us and watched how nonchalant we are about church? Well, we'll go if the kids don't have any games today. Well, we're headed to the lake this weekend. Oh, you know, I'm too tired. I worked in the yard yesterday. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? I always reflect back on a quote I read years ago. A U.S. news survey revealed that 80% of Americans believe it's possible to be a good Christian without ever attending a local church. You might say that, but Paul in the New Testament would definitely disagree. Christianity is not just about personal enhancement. It's not just about self-help. It's participation with other believers in ways that bring God to people and bring glory to God. 
John Wesley once wrote, The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. To be in Christ is to be part of His body. You, and you, and you, and you, and I. We are all part of one body. We are God's temple in the world today. And rather than mar that temple by our apathy or by our ignorance, we need to make it glorious. This is why Paul warns us here in verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now you know this word holy, it means special. In the Bible, it refers to what is set apart or what has been dedicated for God's exclusive use. You see, what made the Old Testament temple holy wasn't its fine gold or its cedar timbers or its chiseled stone. It wasn't even the divinely inspired plans that guided its construction. No, the temple was holy because God dwelt there. It was His house. And you don't mistreat God's stuff. That's why in the Old Testament temple, temple defiling carried stiff penalties. Read the first ten chapters of the book of Ezekiel, and you'll find God's reaction when King Manasseh and the later Judean kings polluted his temple. These wicked kings erected idols to false gods. They committed lewd acts. Their behavior was bad enough, but to do it in the temple was a slap in God's face. And God withdrew his presence. Oh, he did it slowly and gradually and reluctantly, but he did it definitely. Shortly thereafter, God brought judgment. You see, those who defiled God's temple, God destroyed. Actually, both Jesus and Daniel point to such an act as a mark of the future Antichrist. When this future ruler enters the rebuilt temple and sets up an idol to himself to be worshipped, God is going to take it as the ultimate insult. It's this defilement that's going to bring about man's final judgment. You know, today we're appalled at the evils of ISIS. All over Syria today, in Iraq, terrorists have burned and have defaced historic Christian churches. And yet here, Paul isn't warning Muslims about defiling the temple. He's warning Christians, you and me. He's warning us about demeaning our fellowship. We need to know That there is nothing more anti-Christ than a Christian who defiles or neglects the body of Christ. To cause division or strife or to just settle for disconnect. That is to care only about your own needs getting met rather than the needs of others. According to Paul, a Christian who acts this way is defiling God's temple. Paul states it in verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. It's interesting, the same Greek word gets used twice in that sentence. Literally, it reads, damage the temple and God will damage you. It's a scary thought. But how you treat people in the body of Christ may just be how you get treated in the end. Apparently, what was happening here in Corinth with their pride and their prejudices and their jealousies and their silly divisions wasn't so silly in the eyes of God. They were defiling what God considered holy. His church. And we'll find out in the chapters to come that this was just the tip of the iceberg. This church was rattled with problems. They they were tolerating immorality. They were suing each other in the pagan courts. 
They were causing each other to stumble over trivial matters. They were misunderstanding singleness and marriage. They were violating the God-ordained roles of gender. They were misusing their spiritual gifts. They were even doubting the resurrection. And these sins would have been bad enough, but what made them especially egregious to God was that they were all sins against His temple, that is, His church. Paul warns again in verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Now realize, voluntary pledging yourself to a group of problem-plagued people, that looks foolish to this world. This is how the world at large views our commitment to God's church. I mean, worldly wisdom tells you to stay socially mobile. Just go to be seen and to see others. Hey, hang out with the hip crowd. That's what the world says. Why strap yourself to a ball and chain? Paul pointed out earlier, chapters 1 and 2, the difference between God's wisdom and the wisdom of this world. He, He remembered the message of the cross. The makeup of the church, even the methods of the courier, Paul himself, seem weak and foolish through the lens of man's wisdom. And yet God worked in ways that our world calls foolish. Paul noted that the Jews were into power. He said that the Greeks sought after wisdom. But the cross appealed to neither. It was foolishness to the Greeks. It was weakness to the Jews. It was the antithesis of what the world valued most. The same was true of the church. When Paul looked around the room in the church at Corinth, he saw not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. There weren't a lot of ex-athletes and celebrities and VIPs in this church. Paul said of the Corinthian Christians, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. I mean, even Paul himself came to the Corinthians in a way that could have been construed as foolish. Rather than try to impress them with his style or his smarts, he kept it simple, didn't he? He preached nothing but Christ crucified. See, Paul learned there is nothing for the Christian to gain by trying to impress this world. Man, I hope you know that. It'll save you a lot of time and effort. There is nothing for a Christian to gain by trying to impress this world. The Christian message and the church both fly in the face of worldly wisdom. God saves mankind not by human logic or human ingenuity, but by simple faith. God chooses not the elite, but the unlikely, so that He can show off His grace and power. God's ways often appear foolish at first. But you see, Paul was willing to be a fool in the world's eyes in order to follow Christ. Are you? Recall how Jesus taught in paradoxes. He said, the last will be first. He said, to be great, you must be a servant. To save your life, you first must lose it. Give, and it'll be given to you. Lay down your life, and God will raise it up. Jesus knew 
that the ways of his kingdom are a puzzle to this world. Hey, if you want to roll with Jesus, you can't be afraid of appearing foolish and frail in the eyes of this world. The world doesn't appreciate the wisdom of God. I mean, your friends will ask you, why are you getting baptized? That's weird. Going down in a pool of water and letting some stranger dunk you? What in the world are you doing? Why do you spend so much time at that church, man? There's no money in it. You don't get paid to go. In fact, when you get there, they ask you for money. It just seems silly listening to a guy talk from a 2,000-year-old book about subjects that are more spiritual than practical. Why not sleep with your girlfriend? Everybody else does it. Hey, just fudge on your expense report just a little. It's a perk of the job. Hey, stop caring about that other guy, man. Don't you think it's time to look out for yourself? The suggestions go on and on. Hey, if you follow Jesus and obey his word, understand, you will be at odds with this world. You'll be labeled a fool. And yet in the end, God's wisdom will save you in more ways than one. You see, for Paul tells us in verse 19, he says, it is written. And here he quotes Job 5 verse 13. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. Oh, folks think that God's ways are foolish, but God has ways of turning the tables. Match wits with God, and you'll end up the dimwit, trust me. Try to outfox God, and you'll get trapped. God's ways may appear foolish or silly, but He is infinitely wise, and God knows how to humble the arrogant man. It reminds me of Wile E. Coyote. You remember the coyote? All his plans to catch the roadrunner. They all backfired, didn't they? He had scheme after scheme after scheme, and yet he always got caught in his own craftiness, just like the person who opposes God. Humans think they're so smart. People think they're foolproof. But God's wisdom catches the proud in their own craftiness. Remember the classic example was Haman. Everybody bowed to the Persian official except a Jew named Mordecai. Mordecai worshipped God alone. And Haman couldn't stand it. Mordecai was a burr in Haman's saddle. Haman plotted to exterminate the Jews. And he built a gallows just for Mordecai. Yet read the book of Esther. And you'll see how God uses a young lady to turn the tables on Haman. God ended up delivering the Jews in Mordecai. Haman ended up hanging from the gallows he had built for his enemy. Again, God catches the wise in their own craftiness. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 94 verse 11. He says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. You know, it's surprising how confident we've become in ourselves. In 1950, a Gallup poll asked high school seniors the question, Are you an important person? At the time, in 1950, 12% said yes. They asked the same question to high school seniors in 2005, and 80% said yes. Time Magazine asked Americans, Are you in the top 1% of income earners? Based on their responses, 19% of Americans are in the top 1%. I'm just saying the tendency for all of us to think 
too highly of ourselves is very real. And yet the Lord knows how to whittle us down to size. Become proud. Take delight in your own genius. And God will find ways to prove to you your futility. God is a chef. He's always in the kitchen cooking something up. And you know what his favorite dish is? It's his specialty dish. Humble pie. He loves to serve up humble pie. He's good at orchestrating circumstances that prove to us that he is God and that we are not. In Psalm 94, the passage Paul quotes, the Hebrew word futile, it means breath. God knows that the thoughts of the wisest men are nothing but hot air. He says, therefore, let no one boast in men. Remember the Corinthians, they were exalting one teacher above another. Paul is saying that humans in general are futile and full of hot air. Thus, don't boast in any man. Don't think that one teacher is any more special than another. Only God is infallible. Men are not. Thus, every human teacher has to be approached with a degree of healthy skepticism. Paul, Apollos, Peter, or Cephas. These were godly men. These were sincere teachers. At times, they even wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit But on their own, they were fallible men. Why choose one above another? Why not learn from them all? Hey, when you listen to me or the pastor down the street or the guy on the internet, you need to check it out with Scripture. You do. You need to be prepared to chew up the meat and spit out the bones. You need to approach us all with some healthy skepticism. Only the Holy Spirit is the one infallible teacher. And then Paul writes, For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Now here is a revolutionary truth. Since we belong to the sovereign Lord Jesus, that means that all belongs to Him belongs to us. Christianity is about fellowship, both with God and with other believers. The Greek word translated fellowship is koinonia, and it means to hold all things in common. In other words, the blessings of God belong to Christ, who gives them to us, then we share them with each other. This means there is no personal property, no proprietary information in the kingdom of God. Christianity is about sharing, not hoarding. Of course, we don't just live in the kingdom of God. Christians have dual citizenship. We're citizens of heaven and of earth, which means I have some earthly responsibilities, bills to pay, a family to feed. I just can't give all my money to feed the poor. We should be wise stewards when it comes to our earthly assets. Yet Paul's emphasis here is clear. When and where we can, we should share and help each other. A Christian should be known for his sharing, not his hoarding. And this idea of universal ownership doesn't just extend to Bible teachers and possessions and our bank accounts, but notice what he says, but to the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. As a Christian, our faith And God's will encompasses all of life. Author Alan Redpath, he writes of this passage, 
I love to go out into the country and remember that it is my Father's world. And because it is His, it is mine. I may never own legal title to an inch of it, but it is all mine in the Lord Jesus. This means that every sunset, every snowflake, every rainbow, it belongs to you. All that belongs to our great God, He shares with His children. Recently, Kathy and I, we traveled out west. We visited Yellowstone, and then we went to Bryce Canyon. I didn't even know Bryce Canyon existed. It's called the Little Grand Canyon. The landscapes are amazing. They take your breath away. And several times I stood there looking out over these beautiful landscapes, thinking to myself, my father made that. Just proudly saying, my daddy made that. As if I was beholding a family heirloom, something that actually belonged to me. But it does. Smell the azaleas in full bloom. Touch a newborn baby's skin. Watch a groom kiss his bride. Both life and love are yours to enjoy. For you are Christ's and Christ is God's. But not only does the beauty of life and love and nature belong to you, so does death. Paul writes emphatically, the world or life or death are all yours. Not only things to come, but things present are also yours. God's gifts don't just start with things to come, with the by and by. No, the painful reality of our here and now, the sufferings of this life also belong to us. Pain is as much a part of God's plan as His beauty. The problem is that we don't embrace it as such. And i got to admit, I'm as guilty as the next guy. I confess to you, whenever I'm faced with painful circumstances, my first tendency is to try and minimize my exposure. No one likes to suffer. We all look for ways to relieve or to avoid or to deaden the pain we feel. People today go to great efforts to surround themselves with only positive, pleasant, happy thoughts. They put up barriers to protect themselves from anything negative. Folks avoid unpleasant feelings at all costs. Author Lois Cheney, she writes disparagingly of this very human tendency. She says, feeling blue? Buy some clothes. Feeling lonely? Turn on the radio. Feeling despondent? Read a funny book. Feeling bored? Watch TV. Feeling empty? Eat a Sunday. Feeling worthless? Clean the house. Feeling sad? Tell a joke. Ain't this modern age wonderful? You don't got to feel nothing. There's a substitute for everything. God have mercy on us. Some folks go to more extremes. They numb their pain with drugs or food or booze or illicit sex. Other people deal with their pain by ignoring it. Some by bottling it up. Others by taking it out on others. Some even vent their pain in an anger toward God. You see, the human reaction is to avoid pain. But there is a better way. The Christian way. And I want to be careful how I say this. Because some of you live every day in chronic pain. 
And if a cure was made available tomorrow, I I want you to know, I would encourage you to avail yourself to it and to praise God for it. At times, God does heal us of our sicknesses and alleviates our pain. Our healing occurs because it brings God glory. But God does not promise to heal all of our sickness and to remove all of our pain. Instead, He has taken possession of life and death and things present. And He has transformed the pain from our enemy into our friend. You see, death and suffering now belong to Christ. And in the absence of His healing, God calls on us to embrace our pain. In other words, to take up our cross. God wants us to realize that He uses difficulties and sufferings in our lives to mold us and to shape us into the image of Christ and even brings glory to Himself through our faithfulness. You see, it's God's desire to redeem our pain. Of course, as I've stated, this is not the typical human reaction, but it is the Christian reaction. A believer believes with Paul that the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are God's. God has a purpose for all these things, even the evil in the world. Yes, He could remove the suffering from this world. He could remove us from this suffering world, but He does neither. Rather than remove our pain, God redeems our pain. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 is a verse I love. You do too. God needs our pain together. He mixes it together with His comfort and His power and His wisdom. And the resulting mixture serves our ultimate good and His eternal glory. God can do that. Realize God didn't cause man to sin, but He knew He would. And He took it into account in His grand plan. In the Garden of Eden, before the original sin, Adam and Eve were innocent. They were naked and ashamed, unashamed. They didn't know sin and shame and guilt and death. But neither had they tasted of God's forgiveness. And of His mercies, they had never experienced the transformation He can work in a person's life. And thus, how could they truly be grateful for His grace? Realize, God's goal was never our innocence, but our redemption. God endured our sin, even its resulting punishment. Why? So that we can now appreciate His grace and His goodness and His kindness and His mercy for eons to come. God wants to live eternally, not with innocent people, but with redeemed people who appreciate Him as the gracious God that He is. And this is what God has done in making the the world and life and death and things present and things to come all His. They are His. And now they're yours. So, Don't run from the pain in your life. Embrace it. See what God wants to work in you and through you by your suffering. It was C.S. Lewis who once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts to us in our pain. Pain is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. 
The things present are yours to waste or to use. Even death belongs to the Christian. Death is no surprise to God. It's not an embarrassing mole on the nose of God's plan. Yes, death is the result of sin, but if you believe in God's sovereignty, you have no other choice than to consider death a part of His design, His grand design. I mean, like a boxing champ who chooses his next opponent, God picked death to challenge the Savior. Every fighter needs an opponent, and it was Christ's ambition to go the distance with death and to wear him down and to knock him out. Even redeem death for God's purposes. That's why Paul laughs at and taunts death later in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, oh death, where is your sting? Obviously, Jesus hasn't removed death. We had three funerals this past weekend. Lucy and Bob's funeral here at the church and the Williams' funeral, they... uh, buried their father this past weekend. Obviously, Jesus hasn't removed death. It remains. But He has redeemed it. You see, this evil we call death is no longer our undertaker. Now it is our upper taker. Death is now heaven's vestibule. It is the Christian's elevator to the rewards and riches that are ours in Christ. Today, death is no longer our enemy. It's our friend. It's our servant. It belongs to Christ. And now it belongs to me. And I pray when it's my time, I'll die like a Christian. In his commentary, John Phillips recounts a friend whose wife was dying of cancer. Her pain was severe. This man had been cruelly told by other Christians that if he'd had enough faith, his wife would have been healed. How mean is that? He thought her suffering was his fault. Well, Philip sat down with his friend and John told him, he said, one of the things that God has given us is death. It is God's gift. It may not be what you're asking Him for. It may not be what you want. Nevertheless, God Himself says that it is His gift to us. Right now, death is God's gift to your wife. Death will bring immediate end to her pain. Any moment now, she will close her eyes on earth for the last time. She will open them again to look straight into the face of Jesus. Death is God's gift to her. And it's also God's gift to you. For the Holy Spirit will come to you in a new way. He will help you get on with your life. Philip said after he he had said these words, the man reached up and he dried his eyes and even cracked a slight smile. And he got on with his life. Even death belongs to Jesus, and it now belongs to the Christian. Let me close this morning with a stanza from an old hymn. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy, who through life has been my God? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in Him to dwell, for I know whatever befalls me. Jesus doeth all things well. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's take that truth seriously. Let's not defile or neglect each other. 
And rather than buy into human wisdom, let's recall that God's wisdom appears as foolishness to this world. And let's remember that all things are Christ. And since we belong to Christ, all things belong to us, both the pleasures and the trials, even life and even death.